Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here and to welcome you again to Southeastern. Thank you for gracing us with uh, your presence this weekend. And it is uh, my prayer and the prayer of our school that this has been uh, worth the time and the investment that you have have given it. This morning, I I want to try to show you how biblical theology uh, informs uh, systematic theology, how it informs practical theology, and also how I think it should help us develop and cultivate our Christology as well. And so if you would take your Bible and join me in the book of Philippians chapter 2, although I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 27 of chapter 1 because I think that's what you need to do to catch the context of what Paul is going to say to us in this passage that has wonderful uh, ethical admonitions for how we relate to one another in the body of Christ, and then to see that he actually grounds that practical theology in a lofty and exalted Christology that shows us again the intertwining of these two disciplines. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God." For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind." Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For many years I had the joy of teaching systematic theology. And when you come to the doctrine of Christology, you discover that there's something of a debate uh, between theologians who look at that doctrine. And the debate goes something like this. When we do Christology, 
Should we start from above or should we start from below? Uh, in other words, should we start with his deity and work to his humanity or should we start with his humanity and, and work to his deity? To, to oversimplify, to make the point, should we start, for example, uh, with the Gospel of John, and in particular, John's prologue? Or should we start with the synoptic Gospels, which very much begin emphasizing his human life and his experience as a man? And, of course, I came back and, and argued that actually it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. The fact is it seems as if the New Testament weaves them together so that it's a, a false dichotomy to separate them out in that kind of a way. But I also argued in uh, the book Theology for the Church that there's another way perhaps to get at Christology that is more fruitful and that will inform those two approaches, and that is Christology from behind. In other words, might it not be better to go back to the Old Testament and walk your way through it and see how it informs us in terms of our understanding of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and let it then lay the foundation for our systematic theology. We talked about the fact yesterday that it is probably best to start with biblical theology and then having developed that, then begin to construct your systematic theology, also bringing in insights from history and, and other disciplines as well. And so if we were to begin with the Old Testament and we were to walk our way from Genesis to Malachi, what would we discover in terms of the kind of Christology that is being developed and that we then rightly anticipate will be revealed in the New Testament? In other words, there are a number of ways to get at doing uh, biblical theology. We talked about the fact that one can start with a paradigm of, of creation fall, uh, reconciliation, redemption, and restoration or new creation. But also, it is very fulfilling and I think very helpful sometimes to look at it from a promise and fulfillment kind of paradigm. What is it that God has promised? And then what is it that we find fulfilled in the full revelation of the Son of God? And so if you were to begin in Genesis, you would find the first promise of this coming one in chapter 3 and verse 15. Uh, Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. Uh, they've been tempted and seduced by the evil one. And yet God steps in in verse 15, what is called the Proto-Evangelium, and he says, I'm going to put enmity, he's speaking to Satan in the person of the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. Uh, you will bruise uh, his heel, but he will crush your head. And there's a sense in which the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of that wonderful promise there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. As you move your way on through the book of Genesis, you come to chapter 12, and there the night line begins to narrow as God tells us it will be through Abraham that he will bless all the peoples of the earth, particularly through his descendants. You then move on into Genesis and you come to chapter 49 and there the line narrows again. And here Judah is taken out among the 12 sons. And we are told that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh, until peace comes. And so we now understand that God is going to bless not only through the seed of a woman and through Abraham, but in particular through a descendant who will come from the line of Judah. 
We then can move on and, of course, spend time in the Exodus where we have much typology with the construction of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system developed there and Leviticus. But let me jump ahead to Deuteronomy. And there Moses tells us in chapter 18 and verse 15 that God is going to send a prophet like him, but a prophet greater than himself. And then we move on into the historical narratives, and we come particularly to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God again narrows the line again, and he makes a promise to David that David will have a descendant who will establish a kingdom, and that a son of David will sit on a throne forever and ever and ever. Now, it is very clear that if that is going to come to fruition then that means either one, there will be a succession of Davidic descendants who will be sitting on that throne, or there will be a single descendant of David who forever will sit upon that throne. And then we move on into the uh, wisdom literature. And, of course, Psalms is filled with a number of messianic psalms. Psalm 2, the great son who will reign over Zion. Psalm 16, which informs us that there is going to be one coming who will experience death and resurrection. Peter makes that very clear in his Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2. We then come to this trilogy of beautiful psalms in 22, 23, and 24. Some have spoken of it as the suffering Messiah, the shepherd Messiah, and the sovereign Messiah. We then can move on into Psalm 45 and then that great Psalm 110 where we are promised a coming one who will be a king priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews will go to some length to develop that particular theme as well. We then move to the book of Isaiah and there in chapter 7 and verse 14, we are told that the one who is to come will be virgin born and he receives the title Emmanuel, God with us. And one should not uh, miss the connection between Isaiah 7:14 and what follows immediately after that in chapter 9 and verse 6, where we're told that one will come, the government will rest upon his shoulder. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of his reign there will be no end. And then you move on into the book of Daniel. And in particular, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel receives a night vision of one coming in the clouds of glory, one likened unto a son of man who receives the kingdom. And again, that kingdom will be forever. And then you come to a passage like Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, where we're promised that the coming one will find his birthplace in Bethlehem. But we're also informed that his uh, uh, existence is from everlasting, and he too will inherit a kingdom and shepherd God's people. And so this portrait is gradually coming together throughout the Old Testament. But I jumped over one particular passage, and I did so because it seems to be the case that everything I've shared to this point, for the most part, Jewish persons, Hebrew persons in the first century would have embraced. But for some reason, they were blinded to the fact that this one who was to come would also be the suffering servant of the Lord of Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and in particular, Isaiah 52:13 through chapter 53 and verse 12. And yet, when we come to the New Testament, we find Jesus himself wedding 
For example, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the idea of the Son of Man and the suffering servant of the Lord and combining them in one person. We find at the baptism that wonderful statement from the Heavenly Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you look at that text carefully, you find three threads coming together to inform that text. Genesis 22, Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1. In other words, the uniqueness of this son is drawn from that Isaiah text. The fact that he is the Messiah King who will reign on Zion from Psalm 2. But how will he recognize, how will he realize, how will he bring in his kingdom? He will do so as the suffering servant of the Lord. And then you come to the New Testament and you find some wonderful Christological texts that again draw on Old Testament themes like John 1, 1 through 18, that great Logos passage. Uh, Colossians 1, 13 through 23, which seeks to emphasize the fact that he is the creator in whom all things hold together and therefore he is to be the preeminent one in all of our lives. You come to a text like Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, where we are told that in times past, God spoke truthfully, but partially through the prophets of old. But in these last days, he has now spoken decisively and climactically in the person of his son. But what I would like to do this morning is to see how it is that uh, Paul in Philippians 2 will draw from certain threads of the Old Testament to inform us again, not only concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there is Christology, but how he connects that uh, very interestingly also to practical theology as well. So if you look at this particular text before us this morning, most would agree that there's a hinge verse that connects everything together, and that is found in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a present imperative. It's a word of command. Uh, it's in the present tense, which means it is to be a constant pattern and a constant action in the life of the believer and in the life of the community. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what I believe Paul does. Paul, in essence, gives us what that mind looks like in verses 2, 3, and 4. He then shows us in a, a wonderful illustration, if you like, that mind lived out in the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you want to see that mind in action in the life of our Lord, then wonderful, let me show it to you in verses 6, 7, and 8. And then the result of that kind of mind being lived out in verses 9, 10, and 11. And I think I will be able to show you, at least that is my goal this morning, how it is that Paul draws from very particular Old Testament things. He's basically doing intercanonical biblical theology to inform us as to who Christ is and then to challenge us to adopt and live the pattern of his life as we cultivate his mind. And so if you look at chapter 2 and you begin there in verse 1, Paul begins with a word of encouragement. He, he basically talks about some particular blessings that are true for the child of God. And he says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and there is, if there is any comfort of love, and there is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, 
and there is, and if there's any affection and mercy, and uh, there is. He, he believes that these things are indeed true for every child of God. There is consolation. There is encouragement because we are in Christ. It's instructive to note uh, that when Paul wrote Philippians, he was in prison. He was under house arrest, uh, as we uh, find at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28. But he's not certain about his future. Uh, He's hopeful, but he doesn't know whether he will be released or whether he will be uh, executed. And yet he can say, regardless of my circumstances, I am encouraged because I am in Christ. He says, secondly, I also have comfort of love. Now, he doesn't specify, does it, uh, exactly the source of this love. I think because of what he just said, he is being comforted primarily uh, by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life because he is in Christ. But at the same time, we are the body of Christ. And so I think he would also at least indicate that he was being comforted by the fact that he knew he was loved by the Philippians and loved by uh, the believers as well. The community of faith. Uh, was very important in sustaining Paul as he was going through this particular trial and difficulty. He then says, thirdly, and if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Again, uh, he doesn't specify the source of this koinonia, although I think he would say, well, you know, I, I, I've taught elsewhere that I, my, my body, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom I have from God. I know I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price and I'm to glorify God in my body. But the Spirit of God dwells in me. And so that is a wonderful source of communion and fellowship that I have with the one true and living God. And again, I think he would say, but also... Uh, the fellowship that should permeate the body of Christ as the Spirit of Christ is reigning and ruling in our midst also brings that sweet koinonia and, and fellowship. So he says, I, I am comforted by this, this love. I am encouraged because I'm in Christ. And then he says, and uh, there is also this affection and mercy. There is this tenderness and compassion. And Paul is not being exhaustive here. We know that. He is simply saying that right now, in light of my experience and in light of your experience, uh, you know, I think, again, it's important to note that the church at Philippi was a wonderful church. Uh, it was a missionary church. In fact, if, if God were to have uh, put me uh, in the first century and he had appeared to me in a vision and said, I'm going to allow you to choose your pastorate. Uh, I will place you where you would like to go. I I, I don't think God does that very often, but if he had done that to me, I I can tell you I would have immediately ruled out Corinth. Uh, That would have been the last church that I would have uh, chosen to pastor. Uh, Maybe could have been inclined to go to Ephesus, but I I would have probably picked uh, picked, uh, the church at Philippi. Uh, because they were a missionary church, they were a, a generous church, an incredibly giving church, and yet... If Paul is challenging them to have the mind of Christ, it may be because some of them don't have the mind of Christ. If Paul is challenging them to do these various and enjoy these various things in verse 1, maybe it's because they weren't enjoying and, and doing these various things. And in fact, I think that becomes quite clear because moving from these blessings of verse 1, he now moves to address this mind of Christ behavior in verses 2 3 and 4. And in verse 2, we're going to see that he emphasizes unity. In verse 3, we'll see that he emphasizes humility. And then in verse 4, he emphasizes sensitivity. Look at verse 2. Fulfill my joy. Another imperative, word of command. 
Fulfill my joy. How? By doing four things. Number one, by being like-minded. Number two, having the same love. Number three, being of one accord. Number four, being of one mind. Paul, in essence, says you can bring joy uh, into the life of the one that God allowed to plant the church there in Philippi if you will be like-minded, have the same love, be one accord and of one mind. Now, why is Paul telling them to do this? Because evidently that wasn't happening. You say, how do you know that wasn't happening? Take your Bible and just turn a couple of pages to the right to chapter 4 and look at verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 2, 3, and 4. Paul writes, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be what? Of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women... Who labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Evidently, there were two women in the church that had become um, disconnected, uh, disenchanted. Uh, They had fallen out with one another. Uh, Perhaps one sat over here and the other sat over here, and they were building around them their own uh, group of sympathizers. And again, these were not bad women. He says very clearly in verse 3 that these women labored with me in the gospel. So these were not troublemakers for the most part. These were good women. But for some reason, they are now at odds with one another, and they are disrupting the unity of the fellowship so much so that Paul, number one, calls them by name. And secondly, he admonishes the church to assist these women in putting things and getting things right and bringing them back together that they might indeed, what, be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, a little practical theology at this point. Sometimes good, godly people will disagree. Sometimes people who have a great love and passion for the Lord Jesus We'll get at odds with one another. I immediately think of what happened in uh, Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem council has met. Uh, They have come to a decision that Gentiles are saved, just like Jews are saved, by grace through faith in Christ with no burden of the law upon them. Uh, Paul gets together with Barnabas and says, you know, uh, it's time to go back on another missionary journey and we need to see how these churches are doing and then perhaps go on beyond that. Barnabas says, that's a great idea and I'll get John Mark to go with us. And Paul says, not in my lifetime. Uh, John Mark uh, is a wimp. John Mark evidently is a mama's boy. John Mark doesn't have the stuff of a missionary. After all, you go back and you read the first missionary journey record in chapter 13, verse 1, through chapter 14, verse 28 of Acts, and we know that somewhere along the line, John Mark went back home. Well, Barnabas, son of encouragement, uh, we need to give him a second chance. Paul, not the son of encouragement, he's not getting a second chance. And the Bible says the dissension between them was so great Paul goes one way and gets a new missionary partner, Silas. And Barnabas goes in another direction, and he takes with him John Mark. You say, that's unfortunate. On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, we now have, instead of one missionary team, two missionary teams. 
I think that's a good thing. Furthermore, I've often been asked by, by brothers and sisters, well, who do you think was right? Well, you know, I don't want to really make that call, but if I had a gun to my head, I'd have to say in this particular situation, I have to kind of cast my vote with Barnabas. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is in prison for a second time, and this time he's pretty certain that he is going to be executed, uh, he tells uh, Luke to come and, or Timothy to come and see him before winter, and he says, and bring John Mark, for he is profitable to me. And so the fact is, sometimes people who love the gospel, who love the word, who love the church, can, can get at odds with one another. And that evidently was what was happening at Philippi. And, and let me be clear before I move on. We don't have to see eye to eye on everything to function well together in the body of Christ. We don't have to be lined up as clones of one another to work well within the local fellowship. But, but we do have to be united on what really matters. There, there are some things that are just non-negotiables. And furthermore, there must be a certain spirit and a certain kind of heart affection for one another, else we will not be able to function well as the body. And unfortunately, if that takes place, then all men will not know that we're disciples of Christ by the way we love one another. And so Paul in verse 2 of chapter 2 says, You need to fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being literally of one soul and having also one mind. So Paul says the mind of Christ looks a whole lot like unity. Mind of Christ looks really a lot like humility. Verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or, and the New King James says conceit, Actually, the old King James gets it better, in my judgment, vain conceit. Uh, it's a compound word in Greek, kinodoxa. Doxa, glory, a word that had at its root the uh, meaning of opinion. The word kino, kanao, and hang on to that because it's going to appear again very significantly in just a moment, means empty. Empty. So a kinodoxa kind of person is someone who has an empty opinion of themselves. They think they're something when, in actuality, they're nothing. They are all puffed up when God says there's really not much there at all. And so he says, let nothing be done, not a single thing be done through selfish ambition. If I could summarize a, a spirit that says, uh, I must have what I want. Let nothing be done through vain conceit. Uh, I deserve what I want. No, no, no. Uh, don't have the kind of mind that says, my agenda, no matter what. Uh, don't have the kind of approach to ministry that basically says it doesn't matter who gets knocked down. It doesn't matter who gets run over. It doesn't matter who gets hurt. It doesn't matter. Uh, I've heard from the Lord, and if you get in my way, then I'll steamroll you. Uh, that may be the way the world works. That's not the way the body of Christ is to work. That may be the way a CEO of a corporation leads. That's not the way a shepherd will lead the church of God. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. I must have what I want. Let nothing be done through vain conceit. I deserve what I want. You know, that's a good question to ask, isn't it? How many of us here today really want what we deserve? Well, I, I know I don't. 
I know I want what God in His amazing grace has made available through His Son, Jesus. And so nothing through selfish ambition, nothing through vain conceit, but in humility of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Humility. Verse 4, sensitivity. Let each of you look. It's the Greek word skopentes. We get our word telescope, microscope from it. It means to look at very intently, to gaze at. So let each of you scope out, if you like, not only his, his own interest, let him also scope out the interest of others. God has blessed my wife, Charlotte, and me with four sons, uh, three of whom are married. And I had the wonderful joy of performing the wedding ceremony of all three of my sons and now my, my daughter-in-law's. In each of those uh, weddings, I read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Because I want them to understand that in this covenant relationship called marriage, few things would be more helpful and valuable to them than that they would each seek the mind of Christ. That in particular, they would seek to live out the mind of Christ as it is explained in verse 3 and verse 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with a humble mind, I will esteem you better than myself. Indeed, I will look out not only for my interest, but in particular, I will also look out for your interest as well. And I shared with them, as I would share with any of you, if that kind of mind permeates your marriage, your marriage will, number one, be a joy, and number two, your marriage will go the distance. And hence, Paul can then say in verse 5, this hinge verse, let this mind then be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, it's almost as if Paul anticipates the question, well, how do we know that Christ had that kind of mind? And he says, I'm I'm really glad you raised that. Let me tell you how I know he exemplifies what I have just challenged you to have. I agree with those Bible teachers who believe that Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is an early Christian hymn. In fact, if that is correct, then already by A.D. 60, uh, the early church is singing hymns to Jesus as to God. And that's a remarkable thing when you consider the Jewish-Hebrew heritage. Already, 30 years or less than uh, his his, uh, resurrection from the dead and his ascension back into heaven, they are singing hymns that they've already formed, and they're singing to them him as if he were, as the fact that he is, he is God. This hymn... I think it's been much debated as to its structure, but again, sometimes theologians and biblical exegetes make things far more complex than they ought. Uh, Really, the hymn is quite simply divided into two stanzas. Stanza number one is verses six through eight, his humiliation. And stanza number two is verses nine through eleven, his exaltation. Now, again, if you were to dig into this text and read through the commentaries, you would find all sorts of debate as to, well, what do you think is the source of this hymn? Of course, some debate, is it pre-Pauline, Pauline? That's a a, a useless waste of time. Uh, But they will debate, well, what do you think is the source from which he develops this particular hymn? And 
there were those for a time that argued very strenuously that he was drawing upon the mystery religions of the Mediterranean world. And some even said it was a Gnostic redeemer myth of a dying and rising God. But again, I, I would remind us that Paul himself tells us that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, an expert in the law. And when I read Paul, no matter where it is, from Romans to Philemon, I find Paul again and again and again, if I read carefully, drawing from the Old Testament, building his theology from the Old Testament. And so I'm pretty convinced, not everyone is in agreement, but I'm pretty convinced that what he is doing in these verses is in essence giving us an inspired commentary and understanding and development of Isaiah chapter 53. I believe the suffering servant of the Lord song is that which is foundational to what Paul is doing here. And I'll do my best to try to show you where those connections are that would support such a reading of this text. He begins then in verse 6 with this very uh, powerful and profound statement. Who being in the form of God... The word being there, Huparkan, speaks of a continuing existence. Who continually existing in the very form. It's the Greek word morphe. We get our word morphology from it, metamorphosis. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that speaks of the very essence of something. The very You may have, I think the NIV says, who exists in the very nature of God. That at least semantically gets at what uh, Paul is saying here. In other words, Paul is saying to us, this one that I'm about to describe has always and forever existed as God. Uh, This rules out any type of adoptionistic kind of Christology where he becomes a God. Uh, This basically puts to death the type of heresies that first rear their heads in the writings of Arius who said there was a time when the Son was not. Uh, There was a time when God was not Father, Paul says, no, there never was a time when he was not existing in the very essence, the very nature, the very form of God. Now, brothers and sisters, systematic theology time, that sets us apart from all the false religions and false cults that dot the landscape of our land. Without exception, without exception. They will deny the eternal deity of the Son. And therefore, almost always will move to deny the doctrine of the Trinity as well. And so Paul puts that to rest and says, no, whatever it is that makes God, God, the Son is all of that in its fullness. If God is omnipotent, He's omnipotent. If God is omniscient, He's omniscient. If God is omnipresent, He is omnipresent. If God is eternal, immutable, holy, just, righteous, loving, merciful, whatever it is that makes God God, He is all of that in its fullness. He existed in the very essence, nature, and form of God, which we at least have hints of that type of Messiah coming throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah does call Him the mighty God. But, though he existed in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, that's, a, again, a confusing phrase. We're not really sure exactly what to do with it. Uh, again, bottom line, it can kind of go in one of two directions, passively or actively. 
Uh, he did not consider his equality with God something he had to steal. I mean, why would you need to steal deity if you are deity? Or, passively, he did not worry about his deity being stolen from him. After all, if he's God, then you're not capable of taking that away from him. Okay? So, though he exists in the very essence of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I like the way F.F. Bruce says it. There's no question of Christ trying to snatch or seize equality with God. That was already his, because he always had the nature of God. Neither is there any question of his trying to retain it by force. The point is rather that he did not treat his equality with God as an excuse for self-assertion or self-aggrandizement. On the contrary, he treated it as an occasion for renouncing every advantage or privilege that might have accrued to him, thereby as an opportunity for self-impoverishment and unreserved sacrifice. So the Bible says he did not consider his equality with God something that he had to hang on to as a personal advantage. But rather, he made himself, and the New King James says, of no reputation. Uh, the NIV says he made himself nothing. Now, I've got some good friends and some very respected commentators who say the idea of his making himself nothing is a really good translation. And I just have to beg to differ. I think it's a terrible translation. Uh, it is the Greek word kanao, eskinosin. And it has really the idea of emptying. He emptied himself, taking, and then the text goes on. Well, now, again, we have to do uh, a little theology here. And we have to decide whether or not we want to do biblical theology, systematic theology, or both. You say, well, you've already said that you think that biblical theology should always take precedence. I do. I guess then you think that biblical theology is usually grounded and rooted in careful exegesis. I do. Well, then if you're correct, then the text itself is going to tell us what the emptying is. You're correct. Just follow what comes behind this. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself, Paul? I'll tell you. Number one, he took the form of a slave. Number two, he came in the likeness of men. And being found his appearance as a man, number three, there's that word from verse three, he humbled himself. Number four, he became obedient to the point of death. Number five, he died the death of the cross. There's the biblical theological explanation of the emptying. Basically, it is an affirmation of the incarnation all the way to the point of his humiliation. But now, again, theologians are not satisfied with that. And so if you, again, uh, were to study the doctrine of Christology, you will know that they're developed, uh, especially in the, in the late 18th and 19th centuries, uh, a thing called canonic Christology. And there are even those that made the argument that in the incarnation, he surrendered during that period of time his deity. Now, that, to my way of thinking, is heresy. That will not wash, that will not hold, that cannot be 
defended. God cannot cease to be God. And so he did not in the incarnation surrender his deity. But I would also point out to you today that there are right now uh, some uh, currents that are beginning to rise up again that at least track toward that kind of, I think, uh, inappropriate, unwise, uh, unbiblical Christology. Um, Jesus sometimes, when he is recording the Gospels, not often, but occasionally, is, is known to say, well, I don't know when this is going to happen, such as the return of uh, the end of the age, uh, the, the coming of the kingdom. And uh, there are those who even argue recently, who claim the title evangelical, that Jesus in his incarnate state sometimes erred. They won't go all the way to say that he sinned, but they will say he erred. And in fact, there are places in the Bible where he makes certain statements that are simply erroneous. He, he got the facts wrong. And so they will opt for some type of um, incarnation, canonic Christology that limits the Son in the incarnate state to the extent that he may sometimes get some things wrong. There are others who go another route, and they will say, well, what you need to understand is Jesus accommodated himself to the faulty first century perspective in a number of areas. So, for example, Jesus clearly believed in a historical Adam and Eve. He was just wrong. Jesus clearly believed in a flood. He was just wrong. In fact, it's very interesting, in his book on Jesus and the Bible, Wenham points out that almost all the major issues where liberal theology tracks away from the historical veracity of the account, Jesus addresses almost every single one of them, including a person named Jonah, literally, historically, being swallowed by a great fish. Now, Certain understanding of the kenosis, he just got it wrong. Just didn't know any better. Another understanding is that, well, he, he, he knew better, but he simply, might I be so bold, lied. He deceived. He will be sweet now, accommodated himself to their faulty first century understanding of things so as not to disrupt things. Well, my goodness gracious, you're telling me he didn't come to disrupt it, it, it just doesn't work either way, and it opens up a Pandora's box that eventually can lead you into full-blown heresy and a rejection of his deity, and now you have a real theological mess on your hands. You say, um, you still think we have to ask the systematic theological question? I do. Say, we get any help anywhere besides this text? We do. Where? From Jesus. Oh, good. Where? John chapter 17 and verse 5. John chapter 17 and verse 5. He is praying his high priestly prayer. And he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I believe the incarnation was not a subtraction of deity, but rather it was an addition of humanity. And in the incarnation, 
he did not lay aside his deity, but he did for a time surrender his glory. He became, if you like, God incognito. And yet within the union of the human and the divine, I am quite confident that the divine guided him every step of the way so as to protect him not only from sin, but also to protect him from error. So that when he speaks, even as the incarnate Son of God, when he speaks as man, he always speaks the truth. He always gets it right. He never misses it even one time. Just as he never sinned a single time, he never erred a single time either. And yet we come back now to our text and the focus again is upon his humiliation and his emptying himself to what? Even to the point of the death of a cross. Cicero, the um, great Roman orator, said death by crucifixion was so shameful and humiliating that a Roman citizen should never speak of it. In fact, the thought of it should not even enter into their mind. Theologians, again, have referred to what we read here as the great condescension. In other words, they they note something like this. The Son was in heaven... But he came to earth, but he didn't stop there. He came to earth and he became a man, but he didn't stop there. He became a man who became a servant, but he didn't stop there. He became a servant who died a death, but he didn't stop there. He died what was in the first century the most shameful and humiliating death known at that time. He died the death of a cross. Recently, I was talking to someone, and I shared this, and it was a layman. He said, well, I think you stopped one step too soon. And he said, I recognize that what I'm about to say is not in Philippians 2, but it's certainly in the total totality of Scripture. He said, yes, he left heaven, he came to earth. He came to earth, he became a man. He became a man who became a servant. He became a servant who died a death. He died a death that was shameful, the death of a cross. And in dying that death on the cross... He took on the full wrath of God and, and experienced the hell that all of us rightly deserve. And I think the layman instructed me more perfectly. This raises a very important question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Those of you that are students of history know that tragically in the church, uh, for many centuries, the blame fell squarely upon the Jews. The Jews killed Jesus. In fact, there are some New Testament scholars that would argue that the Gospel of John is a very anti-Semitic work. I would differ. But it certainly does bring out the fact that the Jews had a very active hand in the death of the Son of God. So... The Jews killed him, but that's not adequate. The Romans killed him. Well, that's true, too. They had the power of capital punishment, and they exercised it, so they joined hands with the Jews in killing Jesus. But that's still not an adequate answer. You killed Jesus, and I killed Jesus. 
It is our sin that put to death God's precious Son. But you know what? Even that is not sufficient. Because ultimately, when you get to the bottom line, who was it that killed the Son of God? It was His Father. His Father killed Him so He would not have to kill you and me. You say, biblical theology informs that. Just hear Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. When you look at this wonderful text, you do find that it is the son who is obedient. Now, I missed that. As I said last night, I had not focused on it as I ought. He became obedient to the point of death. He became obedient to who? His father, who willed the crushing of his son as a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. The son takes himself down. And now his father takes him back up. Verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him. That, by the way, uh, is a word that is found only here in Philippians. In fact, most uh, New Testament scholars believe that Paul coined uh, a new word. It means to, to super exalt. Uh, it means to exalt to the very highest place. I think we have to be careful here. How could the Son of God go any higher than He was before He came into this world? And there are a couple of ways, again, that we can get at it systematically. In, in terms of systematic theology, we now recognize that there is in heaven, sitting on a throne, glorified humanity. There is in heaven the God-man, Jesus, who is exalted at God's right hand. And so that may get us somewhat there. But I think another way of getting at it is to recognize there is not a, a super-exalting of status, but there is a super-exalting of adoration. There is now a new perspective on the one who was slain before the foundations of the world because that now has been actualized in history. And so as a result of that, God has super-exalted him. How? Well, he's given him the name which is above Every name that, at the name of Jesus, don't miss this, every knee should bow. It, it, every knee will bow. Some will bow joyfully, gladly, willingly in salvation. Some tragically will bow in judgment and in eternal wrath. But every knee will bow. All the demons will bow. All humanity will bow. All of creation will bow the knee Heaven, earth, under the earth, and, and don't miss this, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For most of my life, I have thought and, and argued that the name which is above every name is the name of Jesus. 
But as I continue to look at it, and that, by the way, is a minority opinion. In fact, it's a extreme minority opinion. I know most of us maybe think, well, of course, that's the, the way the verse reads. It would seem to point to the name of Jesus. But no, as glorious and wonderful as that name is, I have to acknowledge, I don't think that's the name that is in view here. You say, why do you think that? Because what Paul does is he brings this glorious hymn to a conclusion is he quotes Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23, which supports my argument that Paul is doing biblical theology and he's just kind of, he, he's drawing from the themes of Isaiah 42 through 53. He's, he's just living in that world as he thinks about the great servant of the Lord who was, as the beginning of Isaiah tells us, was humiliated, but the end of Isaiah tells us was exalted. And so as we close this session, just take your Bible, turn over to Isaiah chapter 45, and I'll just read with you verse 20 through 25, and you'll see where Paul has done a remarkable thing. He has ascribed to Jesus the name of Yahweh. How you could have a more clear declaration of deity, I do not know. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 20 Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge. You carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your calls. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from the time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me. Now, now, don't miss this. Who's speaking in Isaiah 45, 23? It's Yahweh. And who does Paul apply uh, in Philippians 2, 11, that statement to? He applies it to Jesus. I have sworn and gone out of my mouth in my righteousness and shall not return that to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. And he shall say, surely... In the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. And in the Lord all the sins of Israel, they shall be justified and they shall glory. They shall glory in who? The wonderful suffering servant of the Lord. The one to whom every knee will bow and the one that every tongue will confess. Heavenly Father, this is a text that we could study for a lifetime and never unwrap its glory and its beauty. It is a text that takes us from the throne room of heaven to the cross at Calvary. And it is an incredible demonstration of love, of grace, and of humility. And Lord, I, 
I repent of my arrogance and pride. I would ask that you would forgive me when I think more highly of myself than I ought. Because when I look at how my great Savior left heaven to die on that cross for me, just how far down He came for a sinner like me, I don't know how to respond other than to say, Thank you, Lord Jesus. I gladly bow my knee and I delightfully confess with my mouth, You are the Lord. You are the eternal God. There is none other like You. And yet, Lord, I understand this morning that this incredible Christological text has very practical application to my life. That as I seek to serve my wife and my children and my grandchildren, as I seek to serve the students here at Southeastern or as I go and minister in different churches or the assignment you've given me within the convention, I'm to serve them as the suffering servant of the Lord has served me. That means there's absolutely no place for selfish ambition. There's absolutely no place for vain conceit. Indeed, with a humble mind like my Savior, I should esteem others better than myself. And like the humble-minded Savior that I love and adore, uh, I should esteem others better than myself. So, Lord, the mind of Christ is rooted in a rich history of biblical theology. It lays the foundation for incredible systematic theology. But also, Lord, is very, very much a part of practical theology as well. So, Lord, help us to be reminded that when sometimes people erroneously say that theology is not relevant, help us to remind them that there's nothing more relevant than theology that exalts our great God, that humbles unworthy sinners like ourselves, and then draws us to a great Savior who by His death on the cross experienced the hell we deserved, took on the wrath we deserved, and in exchange gave us His righteousness that allows us to stand before you perfect, clean, holy, and just. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.